Hi, everyone. I just wanted to start off by making sure to thank Micah, especially for all his hard work, and the uh, University of Virginia Law School for their ostentatious hosting. <laughs> um, Blaine as well, uh, I, I would like to say thanks uh, for including me in, in what is a dream conference. Um, I have the great pleasure of introducing two former teachers of mine. If you stick around in philosophy uh, long enough, you can um, introduce your teachers. Uh, Larry Krasnoff from the College of Charleston. Um, I'm going to interrupt Tony. Cecil, hi. Uh, Labor up top. And uh, Tony, uh, I'm sorry, from Oxford, and Tony Layden from Illinois at Chicago. This will be our race, religion, and ideal theory session. And with that, we'll turn it over to Larry. Again, this seems to be on, and we got that. Yeah, I think that's right. How about that? That seems good. All right, thank you. Um, like everybody else, I want to thank the organizers of the University of Virginia for having us, but especially Micah, um, Laurie, and um, Blaine. Um, so, I mean, Laurie was my student in a class on Kant's ethics in like 1993 or 1994. She was an undergraduate. I was saying somebody was one of those combined classes and uh, had master's degree students. Let's just say that the master's degree students were not as good as Laurie, but <laughs> that's another matter. <laughs> they were still good. Um, and um, to, to Micah and Blaine, too, I mean, uh, Micah, I got, I got in touch and invited him to give a talk at art school a few years ago. He says he's been trying to reciprocate for a long time, so I appreciate him doing that. But I, I appreciate before that, he said some very, very nice things on the internet about an article that I wrote about political liberalism in, like, um, 1998. It's a really long time ago now. Um, and then I realized uh, from talking to him that, like, um, and he and uh, Blaine and, and Jonathan Kwong had all been at Oxford at that time, and Oxford was the land of J Jerry Cohen, and Jerry Cohen did not think that Rawls was the most important political, you know, um, the, the, way, the way to go in political philosophy. Um, but they all kind of went their own Rawlsian way, um, and they said very nice things about that particular article. So it's kind of like they're the graduate students I did not know that I had, um, because I don't I teach at undergraduate college, and I don't have graduate students. So it's really nice to be here for that, um, for that reason. I also want to thank the, my fellow panelists um, for the papers that they wrote, which I already learned a lot from, and hope to learn a, a lot more. Um, both Cecile's papers and Tony's papers, they're, they're great, and they actually, I think they really blend well. I mean, this is actual panel. You never know when you're at a conference that it's going to be a panel that so we're all talking about things that I think they're clearly related. Um, at the same time, I think we're not all saying the same things, and that's, that's, a, that's, that's a good thing, too. Um, one way to frame, I think, the differences um, is that um, we're each, in some sense, taking up a kind of objection that Rawls did not, maybe could not, um, take up something about race in one way or the other, um, and then we're trying to find resources in Rawls' theory in which we could, um, Rawl, a Rawlsian could address such matters, but I think we theorize the question of what it is that isn't taken up, wasn't taken up, should have been taken up um, a little bit differently. It may be, and I can, you know, my fellow panelists can correct my misperceptions um, later, but it, it seems to me that, like, Cecile is sort of saying that, like, Rawls needs, uh, you know, he needs a better theory, theory of the concept of race itself. And Tony's sort of saying that Rawls might have a, need a better theory of racial, the uh, nature of racial injustice itself as opposed to economic injustice. Um, and I'm saying that the problem is something about the way that Rawls treats the history of racial injustice and the role that it plays in the theory. I don't think, by the way, those criticisms or worries are in any way exclusive. We should be concerned about 
all of them, and so there doesn't necessarily have to be disagreement even as we do different things. Um, I never know these days, you know, I came from an old time when people just read, um, and that's, I think I agree with everybody now that that's not a good thing to do. Uh, on the other hand, you all have read, I kind of want to just ask, let you ask questions right now, but um, so what I did was a kind of compromise thing, I just, I did an outline, um, which is really, yeah, it's like a PowerPoint, but it's, you know, on paper, because all I do on a PowerPoint is put words on screen, so <laughs> this is just that, I don't, and there's no images or anything fun if I deal with PowerPoint, so. Um, so I might as well just give you an old handout. So I'm going to talk through the handout, but I'm going to try to do that fairly quickly. So if you read the whole paper, great. If you, read, if you read that, this is just a reminder. If not, hopefully you can follow the different points. I'll talk fairly quickly through the points, and obviously we can address them later in discussion. Um, okay, so the point about the history of racial injustice, that's how I understand the force of Mill, Charles Mills and others' objection. Uh, again, it's not the only way. I do think there's a family of objections that have come along that said that Rawls should have taken up race in a different way. Um, now again, when I read theory of justice, uh, I'm general, uh, a little suspicious of people who say, say now that people in the olden days did not think about race or talk about race. This is America. Um, everybody's been talking about race for hundreds and hundreds of years, um, and uh, it's just a question of the ways that they're doing it. Um, and I'm not sure we should necessarily assume that our way of doing it is the best. I know that sounds like a grumpy old man remark, but like um, I always want to say about that is like, you know, I'm, if I'm grumpy, it's not because I'm old. It's just because I'm grumpy, right? I was grumpy about our times when we were when I was young about those times. I could be grumpy about these times now. Um, but I, I think that that um, we should take pretty seriously that, that the theory of justice, of course, did try to address racial injustice uh, in important ways. Um, we've heard different sort of, uh, we talked about in David's talk earlier about the post-war liberal consensus and about progressivism. Um, there is such a thing called great society liberalism, and I always think of Rawls as basically a kind of um, a, a part of that, and you can't say that great society liberals were not talking about race. Um, but it is true, and this is, I think, the way I understand the force of Mill's objection, that um, Racial injustice, and particularly the history of racial injustice, I think can be taken up only in a particular way in Rawls' theory, and that's in, at the, you might say, at the last stage of in, in the implementation or application of the theory. Um, Rawls wants to, in some sense, lay out a set of liberal ideals, um, and then he proposes a deliberative mechanism through which we can um, uh, uh, live up to those deliberate, uh, live up to those liberal ideals, and then um, we have to apply. We have to apply it. When we do apply um, that deliberative framework, Rawls is explicit that facts, the general social facts, are um, relevant here. And so, to me, um, facts about the um, racial injustice, and particularly and especially the history of racial injustice, are exactly the kind of relevant social facts that should be taken into consideration. In the full paper, it's not on the handout. The example I use is like police stops. If we're thinking about what kinds of police practices, what kinds of, of, of say, traffic stops we want to permit and not permit, um, I think it's extremely relevant to our deliberations about such matters that there's been a particular history of, of racist interactions between police and uh, citizens of color and that um, therefore we might choose very particular restrictions on what police can and can't do in the light of that history. Um, to me, that's a way in which within this kind of broad, broad, broad framework, um, the facts about historical injustice and the legacy of racial injustice, the legacy of that history, um, matter and can, and can matter. So I think a Rawlsian can bring um, uh, facts about the history of racial injustice uh, into um, Rawlsian deliberations, but only at that last stage of argument. 
And I take Mill's objection to be saying, yeah, but there's a problem perhaps prior to that. Um, can we actually defend liberal ideals if, in fact, the historical reality is that um, there hasn't been a general social or political commitment to those liberal ideals? There's a way in which the, the, that appeal sort of rings hollow. Um, so that's the first part of the outline, if you're following along with the, with the numbers. Um, then I think I want to say, I tried to put this in the language of Rawls talking about stability. And here I'm modifying a little bit what Rawls actually means, but I think in an appropriate way. I think it's best to see Mill's objection that somehow the history of, of, of the failure of liberal societies to live up to their commitments, their egalitarian commitments when it comes to matters of race, um, I think that that, uh, that, the, that, that somehow uh, invalidates or might threaten liberal ideas themselves. I think that that should be seen as a kind of challenge to, stabil to stability. Um, and remember, I, I, um, stability here is a very special thing for Rawls. It may sound like um, it's like when you bring up the idea of stability, it means like are your polit political institutions going to fall apart? But really, it's more of a kind of almost psychological matter. I mean, uh, part three of theory of justice is basically a very long argument in moral psychology. Um, and basically, the problem of stability really is basically how can our independent commitment to political values or to a conception of justice and theory of justice terms, how can we square that with all the other commitments that we have? That given all the ways we grow up and the way that we develop and the things we end up caring about, um, are, we gonna, are we really going to care about political um, ideals for their own sake? Are we really going to develop an independent conception of justice? And is that going to cohere with the other values that we have? Political liberalism takes this up in a more kind of rationalist mode, but it's really the same kind of question. Um, now, Mill's objection is a little bit different. So again, in Rawls's terms, the problem of stability is basically the, co the coherence between political values and non-political values. How can we understand them as psychologically connected, but also rationally connected in the, in, the, in the account of political liberalism? Because that's really what the comprehensive doctrines do. Your job, uh, in, in Rawls's account, the job of a comprehensive doctrine is supposed to explain why, from your individual uh, point of view, an individual comprehensive doctrine's point of view, how can um, you affirm an independent to, to a commitment to political values, and how can you um, uh, reason politically without appealing to your comprehensive values in a way that nonetheless your comprehensive values itself themselves endorse. That's the, that's the problem. I guess I don't have to re review all that for this audience, but I think it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a really important argument and obviously central to what Rawls does, so um, I can't really emphasize it enough. Um, so that's the particular problem of stability, but I think Mills in some sense could be seen as raising a challenge of stability in a broader sense. What's that, what's that challenge? It's basically between um, understanding the independent, supposed independent force of, moral, of liberal moral ideals, which, by the way, Mills repeatedly says that he, he does, that he thinks that liberal uh, egalitarian ideals on their own are justified. They make full sense to him. He wants to in, in, in endorse them. But the question is, how can we do that in, in the light of a history of a long failure to live up, of people who say that they do that or, or speak in terms of those values, but actually don't um, carry them out in practice, at least when it comes to matters of race, but not only to matters of race. Um, so there's, because there's a kind of cognitive dissonance to that that we have to then account for, um, a kind of incoherence that we have to overcome. And that's, a, again, that's a, ch a kind of challenge to... Um, uh, to stability. 
So, and, and the question is, how, how, can, how can we address that? And Mills's idea is that we need to have a, a prior, lexically prior, um, account of reparative justice. So like, and what, what that would really do is um, force liberal societies to face up and make amends for the history, and then we could proceed, presumably, to endorse liberal ideas, having kind of resolved this, this, this dissonance. Okay. We'll come back to what that means and how you would carry it out um, a, li a, a little bit, a bit later. So that's the challenge. Okay. Now, I think it's also true, and this is the third point in the outline, that um, the, what's supposed to be Rawls's considered argument about stability in political liberalism, because political liberalism is also framed as a better version, I won't go through the particular argument for this or why this is, but theory of justice, uh, I'm sorry, political liberalism is conceived as a better version of the argument for stability than the one in part three of theory of justice. He's rewriting it for a particular reason. Um, it certainly seems that from a Mill's point of view that this kind of argument would not be helpful. This is stability uh, that doesn't address his own particular challenge. Why is that? Well, it seems that, well, we're going to qualify this in a little bit, it seems that a lot of the argument um, for liberal values in political liberalism, or the, uh, the, the original independent, because that's what we're doing here, is giving an independent argument for liberal values, um, that that argument depends on a kind of historical argument drawn from the nature of religious toleration. This is where Cecile's paper is so relevant to this um, panel. Um, and it seems pretty clear and obvious historically that um, liberal societies did not um, just generalized from, from, uh, uh, um, from egalitarianism or tolerance on matters of religion to matters of race. Um, that you could say that there's something admirable about what liberals did about religion in, uh, in the, in, in the post-Reformation period. You cannot say that there was something admirable going on in um, the treatment of, of, of race. Um, you know, I see this all the time. This is part of all. It's built into the history. I live in Charleston, South Carolina. It's built into the history. It's built into the history of my own um, institution, which is a public university. It was originally a municipal college that was founded by a Catholic bishop, um, a Huguenot minister, and a Sephardic rabbi in the 1770s. That's pretty darn progressive um, when it comes to matters of religion. Um, and we um, work in an institution whose buildings were built by slaves. So there you go. That's the kind of dissonance that we're talking about um, here. Um, you've got a particular record on religion, doesn't seem to extend to matters of race, so how, things could, how could these set up? So this is what I take to be the challenge. Um, this is, I think, take the first half of the paper, which is basically trying to lay out what I take to be the best version of Mill's objection, and then the second half of the paper, I try to respond to it um, from, you know, a, from a Rawlsian point of view. So now we move on to, to that part. Um, the, f the first and really the most important point that I want to make here is that um, I do read the um, argument of political liberalism in a particular way, um, in a particularly, you might say, strong Hegelian way. Um, I'm of the minds also in Hegel interpretation that Hegel's argument is supposed to be, because um, there's sometimes in Hegel interpretation, like you get in sometimes in Robert Pippin and such, that like, well, there can't be a fully sort of rationally justifying argument in a, in a deep sense, so we need to give a kind of historical argument for various practices of one sort or another, and that's sort of second best, but the best that we can do. Um, and I actually think that's a bad way to read Hegel. I think Hegel thinks that actually the historical argument is the best possible rational justifying argument, and you're not taking Hegel very seriously until you actually encounter and think through that, that particular claim. And I think there's a kind of um, Hegelian argument in Rawls, and Rawls says many more positive things about Hegel than you might think, since he's just mostly described as Kantian. Um, 
So um, what am I saying there? Um, I don't think the historical argument is the whole argument. I think the historical argument is an illustration of what's supposed to be a deeper point. The historical experience um, that Rawls is pointing to is supposed to have taught us um, a lesson about um, the very nature of political institutions and the kind of um, justification that they can and can't have. I think that's, that's important. And um, then the stuff about the fact of reasonable pluralism is not really just about like, you know, Catholics and Protestants fighting with each other. It's some, it, it reveals something actually really pretty fundamental about the very nature of practical reasoning. Um, so I, that's, that's the claim, at least. So you take that seriously, and I want to say Rawls is making a deeper um, argument. And the deeper argument, again, is about like the difference between political and comprehensive reasoning and the, and, and, and the ways that they need to be, to be related and, 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 and carried out. Um, the idea of public reasoning is not, again, just some historical um, legacy, but it's built in very, to the very nature of, of what political institutions do which is basically restrain our conduct with rules of one sort or another. And here, I mean, I go very fast over this, but I'm, you know, I'm persuaded that by a kind of like Rex Lara style arg argument about the very need for um, the, the absolute fundamental uh, character of ju juridical rules to regulate conduct in any way that we can't even speak of ourselves as acting freely in any way without already talking about rules that we would all impose on ourselves. And so, and again, the way that since they are imposed on us, the only way we can, we can, we can justify these things is by seeing them as a, some sort of product of mutual justification. So that fundamental idea, which I take Simone to have talked about this, this morning, is built into the very idea of a juridical institution from the beginning. And that um, conceptual argument is deeper than any particular historical claim. Um, so then the idea of the rest of the paper is to take that, uh, um, that sort of idea of mutual justification as public reasoning as a core Rawlsian ideal and want to, and to say that it's, it's not invalidated by Mill's objections. And that's the, that's the, the argument. Um, why is that? Because, well, there's first a kind of historical argument, which you, know, you might question, that um, actually that that was never actually completely falsified by um, um, the history of American and, and even European juridical practices. That, that, that the, again, the very idea of mutual justification is part of what it means to justify um, juridical rules. And so the institutions that take that up are committed to it, even as they might uh, fall short of their commitments in various ways. So I think there is a difference between, say, um, slavery violating the moral time, which is simply an ignoring of the ideal of moral autonomy, and a, a, you know, what we, I think we now take to be a badly reasoned legal opinion, like Plessy versus Ferguson, um, which is not uh, living up to the ideals of mutual justification, but still in some sense paying some formal, if um, uh, uh, incoherent, respect to them. That's a controversial claim, uh, obviously, but I can, you know, can try to say more, more about it. Um, that's the first part of the response. The second part of the response is to, and now we're up, I guess, what are we up to? Um, in part, uh, we're up to part six, so really the last part. Um, is that I don't think actually we could carry out a project of, of um, reparative justice, uh, a political project that would mean something substantively and, um, um, if we get outside the, the uh, practices, the democratic practices of mutual justification that we're talking about and, pub and public reasoning. Um, 
I think that they're going to be essential to understanding what makes any sort of project of reparative justice make sense. That's, that's at least what I argue here. Um, why is that? I, I do think, actually, it's possible to um, isolate a, a count of reparative justice that really is independent of that if you think of it in a purely tort-based sense as private harm. So if we could say, okay, we wouldn't need this kind of thing. If we could say, all right, individuals can come to some authority and say, this is the particular damage that I suffered. This is what would make me whole. Um, in doing that, you actually don't have to engage in democratic um, practices of mutual justification to, um, uh, to you know, uh, specify some sort of substantive conception of justice in that case. Um, but I don't think that will actually work. I mean, we could try to quantify exactly for a given person, like how, what the effects of the racial wealth gap are on them and their economic prospects. But there are going to be all sorts of questions about like who exactly is entitled to reparations. Um, do you have to be the historical descendants of slaves? Do you simply have to be a person of color? Of what color? Um, there are lots of claims about the effects of historical effects of racism on the present prospects of people. And so doing this without coming to some sort of political, real political agreement carried out through real deliberative processes that we would endorse um, as answering those questions, I think is going to be difficult or impossible. So it's not like I'm saying we should not do reparations, although I do have various forms of skepticism about them. Um, but I think that any kind of account of what makes um, going to be make reparations the right ones is going to have to proceed within the constraints of um, Rawlsian constraints on, on, public, re on public reasoning. Um, so in that sense, I don't think there really is possible a, a completely lexically prior account of reparative justice that would actually um, answer the questions that we want to answer about, um, uh, about, about addressing the history of racial injustice. Um, I favor something much more piecemeal, and the police example from the beginning is kind of the one that I would you know, hold on to and, 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 and go back to. Um, I would prefer that we sort of examine a whole range of practices um, in our society um, and ask ourselves what kind of in inequalities are there um, and what kind of practices could remedy those inequalities and make the practices more egalitarian. Um, and in doing that, I think we should, and on Rawls' account, are totally entitled to um, point to social facts about the history of racial injustice as part of our decisions about what would, what, what would improve the situation. This is going to be a piecemeal and ongoing process because the effects of racial injustice, uh, the history of racial injustice, are felt in so many different sectors of our society, in policing, in education, in voting, and on and on and on. Um, I don't think reparations is this part of the skepticism about reparations. I don't think there's any sort of cash silver bullet for this. It's going to be an ongoing process. In doing that, I think ultimately the idea of Rawlsian mutual justification is going to, to survive in that, and it's going to be needed to guide us as we do this in this ongoing process. Grumpy old man point, I mean, I do think that people now um, sometimes talk as if like we're going to have some sort of new reckoning with racial injustice, and we're talking about race issues in a way that we've never talked about before. And there I'm skeptical. I mean, I'm just one, again, we've been talking about these things for hundreds of years, um, and I do think that we're going to keep on talking about them again. It's a hard, it's a lot of work. Um, it's hard work. It's ongoing work. It's not going to be done easily or um, finished um, through some sort of you know, religious conversion on the part of white people or anybody else. It's just an ongoing political process. But when it comes to understanding the nature of the political, 
um, you can't really do that much better than the, some of the things that John Rawls wrote. Thanks. Okay, I think we're ready for you, Cecil, if you can hear us. You're muted, though, I think. Hi, can you hear me? Oh, yep, now we can. Great, thank you. Uh, thanks a lot to uh, Micah for uh, inviting me, and uh, thanks to Laurie for, for sharing. I'm just sorry I couldn't join you in, in person. Um, so my, my paper is called Rawls, Race and Religion. So in the work of Rawls, um, race and religion are distinct categories that pertain to different normative universes. So to be sure they share a crucial feature, they're both morally arbitrary when it comes to the treatment of persons as free and equal. As Rawls says, we are confident that religious intolerance and racial discrimination are wrong or are unjust. But while neither racial nor religious difference should affect the equal distribution of rights and opportunities, they otherwise raise distinct moral stakes uh, within liberal theories of justice. So what I want to do in the talk is first to provide an analysis of Rawls' bifurcated treatment of religion and race. And then I explore what this Rawlsian bifurcation obscures. Uh, and then I show that Rawls's non-ideal theory about religion reveals more about his theory of race than critics have perceived. And finally, I try to explore ways in which Rawlsian-inspired analysis can come to grips with the deep interconnection of race and religion in social life. So there are four sections. One, religion, two, race, three, Rawls's uh, bifurcation, and four, Rawlsian permutations, as I call them. Okay, so starting with uh, religion. So, unlike many uh, liberal philosophers, Rawls had a vivid sense of the importance of religious faith for individuals and of the per permanence of religion as a social fact. So, he wrote an undergraduate thesis in Christian ethics at Princeton and intended to join the seminary. Soon after the end of the war, he rejected the main doctrines of Christianity but retained a kind of fideism, a faith independent of, but not hostile to, or inconsistent with reason. So there is continuity between Rawls's early Protestant theology and the theory of justice. In both, we find the search for morality defined by interpersonal relations rather than pursuit of the highest good, a vision of community based on respect for the separateness of persons, and a rejection of society as a bargain between egoistic individuals. And in both, we also find a deep commitment to religious toleration, to toleration and abhorrence of the evil of religious persecution and state-enforced religious conformity. And Rose's political philosophy from the 1950s onwards sought to articulate political rather than moral solutions to the problem of community, a problem which, after reading Rousseau, he located in bad institutions rather than in human sin and pride. So religious beliefs have a dual Janus-faced presence in Rawls's work. They appear both as an expression of human personhood and as in potential, with political, in potential tension with political justice. So briefly on the two points. First then, religious beliefs are a core expression of a basic moral power shared by all persons, so the capacity to form and develop a conception of the good. And it's respect for that power that justifies the lexical 
priority of equal basic liberties in Rawls's theory of justice. And Rawls explicitly presented the priority of liberty as a generalization of the ideal of religious toleration. Religious commitments, on his view, are special because they are binding absolutely and they are not susceptible to be altered by coercive intervention or persecution as they are the product of the volitional exercise of human reason. This is why when modeling the choice of principles of justice in the original position, Rawls argues that the parties, not knowing which beliefs and commitments they would end up with, but knowing that these might be non-negotiable, that's why they would not gamble with the protection of equal freedom of conscience. The scope of freedom of conscience, however, is vague in uh, Rawls's theory. The argument he deploys only justify a basic prohibition against state religious persecution rather than a substantive ideal of uh, equal religious liberty. It's also unclear, I think, how the normative case for the toleration of religious beliefs goes through to the protection of all moral commitments. Rawls simply grounded the priority of liberty on the intuitive idea of the importance of belief to human personhood. And that was his bedrock conviction. So he starts from an intuition about the respect due to holders of sincere religious beliefs, and then he generalizes this onto a broad principle of moral freedom. So to treat persons as free and equal just is to respect their capacity to hold uh, religious and moral commitments. Now, religious beliefs hold this special place in Rawls's thinking because they are the natural product of the exercise of human reason. Rawls did not subscribe to the opposition that David Hume and some of today's liberal philosophers draw between faith and reason. In his early work, he insisted on applying the same analytical standards in Christian ethics as in moral argument generally. In both cases, he postulated that there existed a universally correct moral point of view, but he was skeptical about whether his truth could be reliably identified because of the burdens of judgment. So human beings would naturally reach different conclusions about religious and moral truth. And that's true even in well-ordered societies or in just societies where most sources of oppression and injustice have been removed, burdens of judgment will persist and there is no expectation that individuals will converge on the truth or untruth of religion. So reasonable pluralism is a permanent feature of the public culture of democracy. Religions are there to stay, even in the, in the just uh, society. Second point, more briefly, because it's very well known, in Rose's later work, this concern for religious pluralism came to the fore of his preoccupations as he became aware of the potential tension between religious pluralism and political stability. So that's the second salient feature of Rose's conception of religion. He worried that the principles he articulated in theory of justice were simply the political department of a comprehensively liberal philosophy of life, secular, skeptical, rooted in controversial views about individual autonomy. And this was problematic because uh, political authority should not be imposed on citizens by appeal to reasons they could not accept. So he then sought to show that the principles of liberal justice could be presented as purely political principles, freestanding from any comprehensive doctrines and therefore not uh, sectarian. They could be endorsed by all citizens from the perspective of their own reasonable doctrines via an overlapping consensus. 
So religious pluralism contained by political, political liberal principles is a structural feature of the just society. Section two, uh, race. So the concept of race uh, receives much more schematic treatment than that of religion in Rose's writings, a lacuna for which he's been much uh, criticized. There's hardly any reference in his work to the history of racial oppression, the inequalities it has generated, or to the place of racial equality in his vision of liberal justice. And the prima facie reason for this is quite simple. For Rawls, for Rawls, questions of race, if they pose acute political problems, didn't seem to pose philosophical problems. And this is because, by contrast to religious beliefs, racist beliefs are always unreasonable beliefs, which can be discounted without loss in political justification. So Rawls considers segregation and slavery as so self-evidently self wrong that he makes them exemplars in his expositions of reflective equilibrium. Race and sex are natural characteristics on the basis of which inequalities could never be justified because such inequalities could never be to the advantage of people of color or women. And this is by contrast to inequalities in talent and good fortune, which will persist in the just society and should be subject to the difference principle. So there is no race in the just society as a race as a social political axis of subordination. And this is how Rawls retrospectively justified the absence of race in his writings, which mainly focus on ideal theory. So there's an ongoing debate uh, initiated by Charles Mills, of course, about whether Rose's deliberate focus on ideal theory is sufficient to explain or exonerate his silence on race. So briefly, there are three main uh, critiques. First, uh, ideal theory is ideological in the sense that it legitimizes colorblindness in actual conditions where race is socially salient as a structural marker of oppression and subordination and it validates the perspectives of members of privileged groups. Second, ideal theory uh, is said to fail to be action guiding. It provides no guidance as to how we are to change the institutions, practices, and norms of racial subordination prevalent today. It doesn't tell us whether affirmative action or reparations are legitimate. And third, uh, ideal theory is useless even as an ideal. And here the thought is that a colorblind, race-free society is so radically different from our own society that it is unclear how realistic a utopia it is. And here the critique is that Rawls underestimates the stickiness of racial structures of oppression. So in what follows, I want to sidestep this debate about the uses of ideal theory, and this is taken up by Larry and Tony in their paper, and I want to focus on non-ideal theory instead, and the implication of Rawls's bifurcation of race and religion in his non-ideal theory. So section three, uh, Rawls's bifurcation. So here we have two different uh, normative universes, so to say. So religion refers to individual beliefs uh, related to ethics and the good life, and worthy of respect in virtue of their tight connections with personal agency and subjectivity. 
the apt political response to religious beliefs is one of toleration and the protection of freedom. Religions also have a dark face connected as they are to uncompromising, totalizing claims on political life. However, liberalism is compatible with religious disagreement, provided believers converge on a shared thin set of purely political principles. The concept of race pertains to a different uh, intellectual universe for us. It only exists in the minds of unreasonable racists, those who grant ethical salience to morally arbitrary biological traits, such as skin color. By definition, the just society will have eradicated inegalitarian racial distinctions. So Rawls privileges religion over race uh, because of the persistence of religion in the just society and its relevance to ideal theory. However, I want to suggest that the primacy of religion also affected his non-ideal theory. And Rawls had a tendency to religionize problems. So he tended to interpret political life through the lens of religious toleration, disagreement, and pluralism. So the problem with non-ideal, sorry, with Rawls's non-ideal theory, as I said, is not so much his philosophy as rather his implicit sociology. And there are three instances of this uh, mistake. First, uh, Rawls tended to interpret political conflict as primarily a conflict between competing belief systems. So his main source here famously is a somewhat sketchy gene genealogy of the emergence of toleration in the aftermath of the European wars of religion. Now to be sure regarding Europe, Rawls endorses a political solution to problems that have their origin in doctrinal disputes. So it's clear that liberalism did not emerge as the political theology of a reformed Protestantism. Protestants, Rawls is keen to insist, were as sectarian and intolerant as Catholics. So it's only after the properly political experience of forced coexistence and modest vivendi that intolerant groups came to accept liberalism in time. So that's his European story. But by contrast, when in the law of peoples, he turns uh, his attention outside the Western world to theorize a non-liberal but decent society, he imagines a society bizarrely called Kazanistan. So in Kazanistan, there is no politics. There's only really culture and religion or kind of homogenized Islam. Kazanistan has not experienced any pluralism, colonization, immigration, or, or any modicum of diversity. So no public culture has emerged that is separate from the comprehensively religious background culture of civil society. Some, some have criticized Rawls for racializing non-Western peoples, but equally plausibly, we could say that it simply religionizes them. So he applies to them his conception of religion as a homogeneous, comprehensive doctrine of political ethics, tightly regulating the lives of its adherents. So it's perhaps also because Rawls held a philosophical conception of politics that he unconsciously perhaps came to endorse a neoconservative thesis of a kind of clash of civilizations 
between the West and the rest. The second consequence of Rawls's privileged focus on religion in his non-ideal theory is that he exaggerated and idealized the power, the political power of public reason and speech, including in unjust societies marked by deep racial inequalities. To be sure, uh, we now know that Rawls was deeply troubled by structural racial injustice as recent research on his campaign against the Vietnam draft while at Harvard, a research by Brendan Terry has shown. However, in his published uh, writings, there is a gap between this deeply critical view of the injustice of US, uh, the US basic structure and the fairly uh, sanitized view of the process of social change that he describes. So Rawls approvingly refers to speeches by abolitionists and civil rights activists, such as Martin Luther King, to show how religious convictions could play a transformative role in liberal public reason under certain circumstances. But he didn't interrogate his faith in the power of public reason and speech in the first place. So famously, he construed uh, civil disobedience as permissible uh, only are uh, permissible in nearly just societies, implying that the US was one, uh, ignoring the, ignored the more radical facets of the black movement, the black nationalism movement, and he kept faith in the uh, transformative power of the public reasoning of the Warren uh, court. The third implication of Rose's privileging of religion over race is that he seemed to believe that the issue raised by the former could help with the latter. Uh, so that, that he seemed to hope that his theory of religious toleration offered a paradigm that could be applied to the resolution of racial conflict, as he briefly suggests in the original introduction to political liberalism. So one stimulating interpretation of this proposed by Benjamin Herzberg is that a racial resentment is analogous to religious conflict in the sense that they both stem from the fear of difference. And the fear of difference undermines the social trust needed for citizens' reciprocal commitment to the just society and the mutual sacrifices that it requires. So the lesson that Rawls took from the wars of religion was that a modest vivendi between conflicting sects was unstable so long as Protestants did not believe that Catholics could be trustworthy citizens, and of course, vice versa. And Herzberg speculates that Rawls saw similarities with race relations in 1970s and 1980s America. So many white Americans, uh, influenced by the racializing anti-welfare rhetoric of the Reaganite right, thought that blacks could not be trusted to cooperate within a fair uh, welfare state. So white racism was fed by distrust of underclass, a code name for black uh, shirkers. To be sure, for Rawls, the fear of racial difference is never reasonable. So the racist are in fact the ones who default on their obligation to treat others as free and equal. They are the real shirkers. By contrast, the fear of religious difference can sometimes be reasonable as some religious beliefs are patently incompatible with uh, liberal justice. And this explains once again why Rawls found the 
issues raised by religious pluralism more philosophically probing than those raised by racial conflict. But his solution was at bottom the same for both. So only a public commitment to the political principles of justice could reassure, provide mutual reassurance to those who feared that religious and racial difference would threaten the fairness of political cooperation. So now moving to my final um, section, um, which is on Rawlsian uh, permutations. So what I try to do in this final section is to argue that Rawls's bifurcated uh, theory, despite its drawbacks, contains valuable normative, conceptual and normative insights, which can be redeployed within a more complex um, account. So race uh, for Rawls is what I shall call um, a third person notion. So racial beliefs only express irrational and unreasonable attitudes about the moral status of others. So they must be combated in the non-ideal world so as to achieve racial equality. Religion in turn is a first person notion. So religious beliefs express the personhood and subjectivity of those who hold them and they must be protected in the name of liberty and the protection of the moral power. So religious beliefs are endorsed by the subjects themselves, whereas racial identities are assigned uh, by two subjects by others, two agents by uh, others. So I, I now want to introduce a, a, another way of combining this standard, fairly standard liberal insights one that preserves the ethical balance of the first person versus third person distinction, as well as the distinctions between freedom, subjectivity and equality, but without conflating them with the categories of race and religion. Hence the idea of Rawlsian permutations. So let me just, uh, to conclude then, uh, uh, just explore three such uh, permutations. Well, first, you might think, well, religion can be a third-person notion too, and thereby it can also be subjected to a regime of equality. From a European perspective, Rose's bifurcation of race and religion is, is a bit odd. Um, while in the US, race denotes biological ancestry and the legacy of slavery and segregation suffered by African-Americans primarily, in Europe, the historical victims of racism have been Jews and Muslims. And as these categories fuse elements of a ritual, nationality, and ethnicity with racial phenotype, the simple characterization of religion as first-person belief is not tenable. Religious identity is not always a first-person identification. He can also take the form of a third person assignation and function exactly like race as a negatively connoted, externally assigned identity that is used as a basis for wrongfully unequal uh, treatment. And this is what uh, sociologists call the racialization of religion. In law, of course, you can be discriminated against on religious grounds 
even if you don't, you do not endorse the imputed beliefs and attitudes, or indeed if you don't identify at all with the targeted group. So this kind of discrimination raises questions of equal social status, not of freedom of religion. And many of the political conflicts that European publics can categorize as religious, particularly concerning Muslims, are sometimes better understood in terms of the race rather than the religion paradigm. So in third person terms, as I've argued um, in, in different places. Now, some US uh, theorists working in the broadly Rawlsian liberal tradition have also noted the relevance of the race paradigm for controversies about state and religion. So uh, Chris Eisgruber and Larry Sager have argued that the non-establishment clause of the US Constitution should be read in the light of uh, equal protection. So just as the officially sanctioned separation between the races carried a message of inferiority and disparagement to African-Americans. Likewise, uh, the public endorsement of religion carries a special charge of violence given the role of religion in defining civic identity in the US. So I think it's therefore incorrect to claim, as many critics of Rawlsian liberalism do, it's incorrect to claim that the Rawlsian framework has no resource to address the racialization of religion. I think it does, provided that the normative concerns which Rawls connected to third-person assignation are applied not only to racial, but also to religious categories. Second uh, permutation. So of course, religion is not often just reducible to a third-person identity, but even as a first-person commitment, which it often is, it can be subjected to a regime of equality, not simply liberty and toleration. As, uh, as we saw earlier, Rawls extended freedom of conscience to all moral convictions, yet only justified a minimalist conception of the consequent right. Later, Rawlsian theorists have argued that mere commitment to non-persecution by the state is inadequate in the face of reasonable religious claims for public presence and accommodation in structurally unequal public spheres. So they've argued, for example, that liberal neutrality is compatible with more robust forms of equality, for example, via the Rawlsian notion of fair equality of opportunity as applied to religion. And that's been argued in different ways in work by John Kwong, Alan Patton, and, and others such as myself. Now, in these discussions, the special weight accorded to religious belief, qua belief and conscience, is not often tightly justified. And in practice, religious commitments are often included within a broader, looser category, which includes claims of culture. The minority rights literature originated not in reflection about religion, but in debates about multiculturalism and the rights of Aboriginal and immigrant communities in countries such as Canada. He therefore invited a broader view of the normative salience of religion away from the narrow Rawlsian focus on ethical conscientious obligations and towards a broader discussions of the relevance of claims of identity, integrity and community. So I think it is uh, also incorrect, therefore, to say that liberal egalitarians are wedded to a narrowly Protestant 
ethical conscience-based conception of religion. And this is certainly not true of the extensive literature on cultural rights and multiculturalism. But as religion fades into culture and culture into ethnicity, there is no reason on principle why racial identities cannot also benefit from egalitarian recognition on first-person grounds. To be sure, a race doesn't exist as a natural fact, but rather as a social relation of third-person inferiorization. However, the negative racial identities invented by racists have often come to acquire positive social balance for their victims through the building of communal solidarities to resist domination or through processes of reversal of stigma. African-American identities, for example, are not only third person, but also first person positive affirmations seeking equality of recognition in societies that have privileged dominant, coded as white, attitudes, norms, and traits. And theorists of racial identity disagree about whether the endpoint of the struggle for racial equality should be the colorblind and, and Rawlsian ideal of deracialization, or whether it should encompass a vision of pluralist equality along multiple dimensions, including racial uh, dimensions. And this takes me to the third and final possible Rawlsian permutation I wish to highlight. So this um, proposes that race is not only an object, but also a frame or a prism of political theorizing. So just as one's religious beliefs uh, shape one's subjectivity, including one's political subjectivity, so can one's racial positioning. So for Rawls, the only subjectivity that mattered was religious subjectivity. As we saw, that's what granted the moral respect due to persons. However, he also thought that religious subjectivity should be configured to be compatible with a political conception of justice. So ultimately, liberal subjects must abstract from their religious subjectivity to acquire the standpoint of citizens. The political valence of racial subjectivity is different, seems to me. As advocates of standpoint theory have suggested, it's the situatedness of subjectivities not their capacities for abstraction that is relevant to theorizing justice. Victims of injustice have an epistemic advantage over others insofar as they have what Du Bois called a double consciousness. So they can see society both through the eyes of the dominated and through the eyes of the dominant. So members of dominant groups, by contrast, occupy a partial perspective. It's partial because it's one where, where race doesn't matter. So they suffer from what males calls white ignorance and an epistemic rather than a moral flaw. This is not to say that the racial consciousness of the dominated should be authoritative in public deliberations about injustice, but it's rather that they shouldn't be disqualified at, at the outset as particularist or partial, by contrast to the spontaneously universal and impartial standpoint of members of dominant groups. 
So to conclude, uh, I try to do uh, two things in this talk. First, I try to uh, bring to light uh, Rose's bifurcated analysis of religion and race and show that how the primary interest he had in religion generated uh, blind spots in his non-ideal theory. Second, I tried to show how the implicit interpretive categories relied on by Rawls, first person versus third person, equality versus freedom and subjectivity, can be redeployed so as to capture the complexity of the social and moral experiences of religion and race. So once we disaggregate the concepts of race and religion, we can complexify the interpretive and normative tools we have to reformulate a liberal egalitarian theory suited for our non-ideal conditions and their multidimensional, indeed intersectional uh, injustices. Thank you. At the risk of being, uh, you know, once a, once a teacher, always a teacher, I'm going to correct Laurie and say that uh, mm -hmm sign that you have been in the profession a very long time is when uh, you can uh, publicly take up a dispute with a former colleague at a conference honoring your teacher and, in, and be introduced by your student, uh, which is the position I find myself in. Uh, so this is a paper that is mostly engaging with Charles Mills's Tanner lectures, which were uh, his final version of uh, mixing it up with Rawls uh, in the service of his larger project about thinking about racial justice. Uh, and uh, these were a set of remarks meant to uh, think with him about that and where I thought we disagreed and where we agreed. Um, so Mills starts out, uh, the part of the Tanner lectures I'm interested in aren't that much different from things he said in, in published writing. So the sort of basic take I think uh, he, he takes to Rawls is that um, first, mainstream political philosophy has been uh, shamefully and often willfully silent on issues of racial injustice. That's a long-standing theme of Mills's work. Um, and in that, he's building on a long tradition of black radical thought. Uh, I think he's exactly right about that. Uh, the second point is that, you know, amongst mainstream political philosophers who were shamefully silent on racial injustice uh, was John Rawls. I'm gonna quibble with that though, except uh, a key piece of that. Uh, and then, sort of interestingly, given how strident his critiques of Rawls were, Mills always wanted to come back and say, but I actually think liberal egalitarian theories of justice are more or less on the right track, and all we need to do, though it's an, an important and, and vital thing, is to supplement justice as fairness with some non-ideal principles of racial justice. And I, what I want to suggest is that um, Mills is right to think that Rawls doesn't have enough to say about racial justice, but he's wrong about where the problem lies in Rawls's theory, because I think he's misunderstanding a key thing of how Rawls's theory works. So I'm going to try and go through that. And the result of that is that the fix to Rawls's theory is different than the one Mills thinks is there. Uh, and my hope in doing all that was uh, I wrote this paper uh, when uh, Charles was still alive, and my hope was to uh, convince him to stop writing about Rawls and go back to writing about race, because I think his work on race was just phenomenally awesome, and uh, I just wanted him to do more of it. Uh, and this was meant to be a kind of permission, like, stop talking about Rawls, you guys can be on the same page, go, this is the way to go forward. 
Um, okay, so what does Mills think the big problem with Rawls is? Well, he thinks it's ideal theory. Of course, ideal theory is a um, fraught term these days. It's one of those terms that has been stretched beyond usefulness, I think. So we have to say, well, what, is, what does Mills mean by it? Well, Mills has a view of ideal theory that I think is also like a March Ascends, where ideal theory is a theory that describes an ideal society. And, uh, right, so you have ideal theory that describes a perfectly just society. And Mills in the Tanner Lectures sort of tries to make his point about racial justice and racial injustice by drawing a diagram that looks sort of like this and then says, well, if you depart from a just, a perfectly just society, you get to a nearly just society and then an unjust society and way, way out on the edge of this, this, this continuum is some, are oppressive societies, which are really, really unjust. And then he sort of lines this up with ways of thinking about race and he says, so a just society would obviously be non-racist and of course, if you're doing a theory for uh, a non-racist society, you don't need principles of racial justice because it's not a racist society. Um, but then he says there's this distinction we should make between the way in which race affects a nearly just society, which is you have a society with racism. And that would be bad, but you'd, you'd have things to say about it even with an ideal theory. But the problem is that societies like the US aren't just societies with racism, they're racist societies. And being a racist society for Mills means you're oppressive. You're way, way out on the edge of this continuum from justice through injustice out to oppression. And so the model here is that, um, right, ideal theory can tell us something about a just society. Maybe it can help us think about nearly just societies, but it's pretty useless when talking about oppressive societies. And I think, like, the image that I think uh, Mills has is of basically a streetlight, right? The theory, ideal theory is like a street lamp and it illuminates some space and maybe a bit of a penumbra, but further out down the field you get the sort of dark spots in the middle of the block where the street lamp doesn't reach. And so what you need if you're gonna illuminate issues of racism and racial oppression is something called non-ideal theory, right? And that adds a new light to the, and illuminates the oppressive space. I think that unfortunately, I mean, that's, I think, the way a lot of people think about ideal theory and non-ideal theory and how they might fit together and why you need uh, non-ideal theory. I don't think that's the way Rawls thought about it. And weirdly enough, to see how Rawls thought about it, it helps to see that Mills is underselling how bad oppression is. That is, on Mills's view, according to something like this diagram, oppression differs from mere injustice because it is a matter of degree, right? It's just injustice worse. But I think it's really important, and most people who've theorized well about oppression, radical feminists, critical race theorists, others, have made a big point about the fact that oppression is a particular kind of injustice. And so it differs from unfair distributions of goods by being a form of injustice that involves arbitrary forms of rule and power, right? So oppression involves some people dominating other people. Injust distributive injustice involves some people having more than their share of some good. Um, but those are really different kinds of ideals. And one thing to notice is once you see that there are these kind of structural differences between these kinds of injustice, what happens is not that ideal theory illuminates some but not all, but we get a, a picture where an ideal theory is illuminating some space of, non of a non-ideal world, right? The idea is you have an ideal of justice. That ideal of justice tells you something about a form of injustice where that's lacking. And so 
we might have different ideals that talk about different kinds of uh, non-ideal space, different kinds of injustice. And so the question we need to ask about Rawls's theory or any ideal theory is not, is it ideal or not, which is the question that Mills asks, but rather, what ideal does it have? And does that ideal illuminate the space of the non-ideal space we're interested in? Right? So if you think of justice as an equal distribution, then you're going to illuminate unfair distributions. But you may not notice anything about oppression, because that's not the ideal you're looking at the world from. If, however, you think of justice as reciprocal relations of power, then you'll illuminate oppression. And so the question is, which of these two ideals do we find in justice as fairness? And if we find the ideal of, just, of justice as reciprocal relations of power, then the problem with Rawls's theory isn't going to be that it's ideal. It's going to be something about the kind of ideal it has. Right? So the question is, where is justice as fairness shining its light? As opposed to whether its light is strong enough to get all the way out to oppression. So I think, and I've argued before, and I'm not going to argue now, um, that justice as fairness does, in fact, offer us a uh, theory of justice as reciprocal relations of power. And so it does, in fact, is concerned with oppressive forms of injustice. I can defend that later uh, uh, if you want, but that's, uh, and I realize that's controversial, that's not the way everybody reads Rawls, but I think that's not where the problem lies. But then the question is, insofar as we're looking at oppression in justice as fairness, because we're, we're uh, theorizing justice as reciprocal relations of power, are, is Rawls thinking about racial injustice? And I think the answer there is no. I mean, that's sort of clearly the case. And I think Mills is right to point this out. And this then places a burden on someone who wants to think through uh, justice generally, and, and particularly racial justice, with Rawls's tools. Um, right, I mean, it's clear that uh, a theory of justice is a book about political and economic oppression, or poli uh, political and economic relations of power and how, what would it would be to make those reciprocal, um, not a theory about racial relations of power. So one question you might ask is, well, why? Like, you know, he wrote this book on a theory of justice. This is, you know, what Mills would say. How could he not have written a book about racial justice, right? What was he thinking? How could he be that blind? Well, there are lots of possible answers for this question. One that I think Mills favors is that, well, racial oppression wasn't so bad. I mean, he doesn't, he favors this as an interpretation of Rawls, he doesn't obviously think that, he didn't think this himself, right? So he sometimes thinks that Rawls was, like many white liberals, not sufficiently concerned with issues of race. Um, or didn't think it was that bad, that it's the idea that the US was a society with racism, not a racist society. Uh, I don't think that's right about Rawls. I don't, there's lots of historical evidence that that wasn't the case, that he was quite concerned politically with racial injustice. There's evidence in the text, et cetera, et cetera. So let's reject that as a possible explanation of why there isn't more about racial injustice in uh, a theory of justice. Because if that was true, we'd just think, okay, he, he had a deep moral flaw. Rawls had a deep moral flaw. A different view, and this is, I think, the one Cecile also mentioned, is that you could think that race is a serious political problem, but not a particularly difficult philosophical one. Right? That is, you could think that race is just a sort of obviously arbitrary moral category 
And the clear, obvious thing to say about any form of racial injustice is that it's unjust because arbitrary from a moral point of view and unreasonable. And that's a vital political problem, right? As a citizen, you should be fighting against it in the 1950s and 60s and today. Uh, but as a philosopher, there's not much to say. It's sort of clear what the answer is. Whereas economic oppression, religious pluralism, these things look like they're political, they're, they're hard philosophical problems. And so if, as a philosopher, you're looking for the hard philosophical problems to work on, you might work on uh, political oppression, economic oppression, and leave aside uh, race. Now, note, like, to have that point of view, you have to think of race as, you don't have to think of racism as a purely individual ma matter of individual discrimination, right? You could have a view of racism as a structural problem, but still think of race as a pre-political natural category, right? So if you think of race as a natural or pre-political category that's then leads to some people in one racial category is being systematically disadvantaged, not because of the sort of particular actions of individuals, but because the structure sets that up to disadvantage them, you would still think that racism is not a hard political, philosophical problem. It's a, it's a serious political problem, not a hard philosophical problem. And some of what Rawls says, like there's this paper about what Rawls' interventions in debates about uh, the Vietnam War and the exemption for college students uh, in the 60s, and he was protesting against, a, uh, or he was moving that the Harvard faculty adopt this position uh, against the exemptions, college exemptions to the draft because they were racially biased. Um, looks like a case of him seeing that there's a structural issue about racism in American society, um, but he's still, I think, thinking of it there as a natural category. So that's how I think how you could end up ignoring racial oppression. Um, right, because you think of race as a pre-political category. But if you've read your Mills, if you've read the black radical tradition that he's drawing on, if you've sort of seen how race works like sex and gender does in radical feminism, then you'll know that that's wrong. That's just the wrong way to think about race. Because, uh, as Mills will, has told us many, many times, race is a political category, right? So it's not just that race is systematically affected by politics, but the racial system is part of the basic structure of a society, the way the class system is, the way the political system is, the way the gender system is. And so whether or not we have a society that's racially structured is itself a political matter. But I think, you know, you could see how, I mean, I take it that the, that second line, that, that, that race is a serious political problem but not a difficult philosophical one, is still today, my guess is, the majority position amongst white political philosophers. It, is, it was certainly the dominant, I mean, overwhelmingly majority position amongst white political philosophers in the 1950s and 60s. So it seems likely that that's the view Rawls had. Uh, it is unfortunate that it is, I think, more, still more prevalent than it should be. Um, and, you know, if, if you are of the view that race is a natural category that's being systematically disadvantaged, then go read a lot of Charles Mills. That's all I can say, that's how, that's how I learned it. Um, okay, so why does this matter to thinking about Rawls? Well, think about the way Mills thinks about racial oppression. Um, 
Mills describes the racial system, the oppressive racial system, as founded on the distinction between persons and subpersons. Right? A racial system creates a hierarchy between two classes of individuals, persons and subpersons, where persons are white and subpersons are non-white. And it's not just that it assigns personhood to people who are white pre-politically, but in assigning people personhood, it makes them white. And in assigning people subpersonhood, it racializes them. That's in some sense no different than a class system that uh, takes away resources from poor people and also in taking away those, depriving them of those resources makes them poor. Um, okay, so a racial system works by creating a system of persons and subpersons, and political theory, and an ideal political theory is ideological generally by be giving us a theory of justice among persons. Right? And a theory of justice among persons in a world where there are persons and subpersons is going to ignore racial oppression. But that, I think, is Mills' diagnosis of why mainstream political philosophy has been shamefully silent on issues of racial oppression. Okay. Um, note here, there are, two, there are two kind of problems here. Uh, that coming up with a theory of persons has. One is, in a world where there are persons and subpersons, a theory of persons is not a theory of everyone, of justice among everyone. So it's an exclusion-inclusion problem. But it, there's a thing that's worse than that, which is that in a, theory, in a society where there are persons and subpersons, persons, being a person is being a dominator in a hierarchical situation. Being a person, like the privileges you get, the status you have, the security you have is all formulated on the status you have vis-a-vis subpersons. And so if you get rid of the person-subperson divide in society or in your thinking, the, the sort of standard repertoire of ways that persons come to secure their rights, their, their status, uh, and so forth are no longer available. And so it's not just a matter of broadening the scope of the pie, right? It's not a matter of adding people of color and stirring. Uh, as feminists used to say about uh, liberal feminism was just adding women and stirring, right? It's gonna require radically changing the structure of the position. Okay, why does that matter? Why does it matter that uh, mainstream political theory forgot to theory, theory or willfully decided not to theorize racial oppression by thinking about persons? Because this is a conference on Rawls, why does this matter for Rawls? Well, now let's turn to the two principles of justice. So for the few of you who don't have the two principles of justice etched on your brains, uh, here they are. And notice, each person has the same indefeasible claim to a fully adequate scheme of equal basic liberties, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I won't read them all. But notice here, we have in Rawls, and this is the latest, for, like this is from the, the restatement, I think this is, so this is not an early formulation from the 60s or 70s, this is a formulation from the end of his life. What we have here is a theory of justice for persons. Now, I don't wanna say that Rawls was using person as code for white person, because I don't think he was. But, if after 30 years of work in race theory, if after you know, a more than century old uh, black radical tradition pointing out the way in which theories of persons are ideological. 
you can't hear that there's a problem there, I would suggest you haven't been listening. Right? And why does this matter? I mean, so you might think, okay, so there's a problem, you should use a different word, that word's tainted by some bad theory. But I think the problem is deeper. And one of the reasons I think the problem is deeper is because I think one of the real powerful features of justice as fairness that's often underappreciated is the emphasis it places on rhetoric and public justification. A theory of justice gives us tools to talk to one another as citizens, to justify things about our world and critiques of our world. That's the, so the point of the two principles is not to give managers a way to organize society. The point of the two principles is that they give us ways to talk to each other as fellow citizens. And the reason for that for Rawls is because for Rawls, as he says in, in the early paper, Justice and Fairness, justice is, fairness is a, sorry, justice is a condition where we face each other openly. And so you have to ask yourself, like, how do we face each other openly? Given that we know, as Larry's pointing out, there's this history of and present of racial injustice. Given that we know that uh, political theories of persons have been used for centuries as uh, ideological cover for racism, colonialism, imperialism, etc. Because I think, like, in order to face one another openly, we have to, like, be trusted. Like, if I'm going to make an argument about justice using the two principles of justice, the person I'm making it to has to be able to trust that I am making an argument where I'm committed to standing on level ground with them, that I'm not slipping in some ideological thing that's going to allow me to keep my dominant privileged position. And so I think it's not enough to say... Um, well, the words, you know, we just changed the word, or we didn't really mean that, or Rawls wasn't racist, or the various other things some people defend Rawls by saying. I want to suggest that what we need is, rather than trying to sort of fix this purely semantically, what we need is what I'll call a preamble to the two, the two principles. And this is like my best attempt to figure out how to say this. But so that, notice the idea here is, there is this deep problem in Rawls's theory once you recognize how racial oppression works. That problem is structural, but it's the structure of the ideal that's the problem. It's not the fact that it's an ideal theory. And so what we need is a different ideal, not non-ideal non principles. So how do we get a different ideal? Well, I want to suggest one way to do that would be to adopt a preamble to the two principles. And this is my best shot at this. I'm not sure this works at all, but and you'll help me figure out whether or not it does, hopefully. So here's the principle. And the point of this is to, to undo this, the person-subpersonhood thing. So no one has the status of a subperson, which is to say that no one is to be exploited, disrespected, or effectively disenfranchised on the basis of or by the processes that form them into their membership in a racial or other socially significant identity character. Put that on a bumper sticker. Um, the full status of person is guaranteed to every human being. What's the, so the one thing to note here is that the, the exploited, disrespected, and disenfranchised are the three, so uh, Mills has these three principles of uh, non-ideal racial justice, and um, they basically are principles against racial exploitation, racial disrespect, and racial disenfranchisement. So this was meant to sort of explicitly say how you get to worries about uh, 
you know, black wealth gaps, about uh, the carceral state, about uh, you know, disenfranchisement, violations of voting rights, and their fair value uh, out of the two principles. I mean, I think you can get them out of the two principles if you recognize that everybody's a person, but we need to say that everybody's a person, basically. And then once you've done that, it's much easier to sort of make those arguments directly. So what's the advantage then of adding this, this uh, preamble? Well, one is it makes racial justice more visible in the ways I just suggested. Once we've taken racial hierarchy off the table of our account of justice, we're not in danger, we're, we're less danger of, uh, you know, the, Mill says at, at the beginning of the racial contract, right, when white folks say justice, they mean just us. So we want to avoid that right, wherever possible. And so one way to do that is to add this kind of preamble. We say, look, we're committed to not uh, endorsing the person subperson hierarchy. And once we do that, we see how uh, racial injustice is there and, and, and a problem. It also, so as I said, it, it, it broadens the scope of who is a person, but because we broaden the scope of who's the person, we change the means that persons have to secure their status, right? In a racialized system where white people get to be persons and they force non-white people to be subpersons, right? White people get to count on having less competition for economic positions. They get to count on uh, other people taking care of their needs, right? They get to count on their security being secured by the containment and surveillance of other people. They get to count on their votes counting for more. In a non-racial system, in a system that's racially just, where there aren't subpersons, those aren't methods you can count on anymore. And so we have to think much harder about how we maintain economic security, how we maintain physical security and safety, how we maintain voting rights, uh, and the sense of sovereignty that comes with being having political liberties. So one way to think of that is that uh, rather than just raising the floor of the racially uh, disenfranchised, disrespected, and exploited, racial justice is going to require lowering the ceilings. Right? White people are going to have to give stuff up. Uh, we're not going to be able to get the things we think of as entitled to by justice in the same way. Uh, so it's not, this is not just a plea for colorblindness. Right? This would have structural, I mean, racial justice would have structural uh, implications for our society, and this is a way of trying to make that point clear within the two principles of justice. So that's the proposal. Um, having come up with this in the end of this paper, I was sort of, I'm like torn because on one hand I think, I can't see why this doesn't work, but I also can't believe that it does work. Like the, given the, the depth of the problem, it feels too easy. And so I'm sort of left like, does this work? Well, I don't know. Uh, so I'll end there with the raw shrug emoji. Thank you. Okay, I'll take the list of questions. I'll tell you why it works later. Just okay. Oh, great. Right, Lori's so going to tell me how it works later, she says. I'll Christy, Derek, Catherine, Simon. I know, Nate, yep. Okay, so Christy, Derek, Catherine, Simon, Nate. Is there anybody else? Gina's got her head. Oh, Gina, sorry I didn't see you. Okay, okay so we'll go in that order. Christy. That's the oh. I just have a comment for 
Thank you. Uh, be because there are other ways of being subordinated as uh, on the basis of social group membership, right? So for example, Young not just talks about exploitation, but also talks about marginalization, powerlessness, stigmatization, stereotyping, systematic mm -hmm. violence, uh, and that sort of thing. So insofar as you do want to include the preamble and presumably have mm -hmm. it be more extensive than just covering uh, racial oppression, uh, you might think about ways of being a little bit more precise when you're thinking about the particular sort of conditions that need to be excluded in the social background. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's right. I mean, I think the, I think there are different forms of oppression that, that work in a broad family structurally similarly, but structurally very differently. So I think, for instance, gender oppression doesn't work by creating subpersons and subpersons. It creates a different category of dominators and, and subordinates. And so what you'd have to say and where you'd have to say it in the theory to get uh, gender justice into justice as fairness is different than where you'd have to get it to undo the fact that it's a theory of justice for persons. Um, but I take your point that like those three categories, I mean those three categories as I said are sort of dictated by Mills's principles, but I think you're right. In general I, I think either I should get rid of the three and just have a kind of general thing of there shouldn't be subpersons or that list should be longer, but you know, it, uh, it would be a better bumper sticker if it was just nobody should be a subperson. Right, so when I was reading it too, I didn't know if the right contrast was between persons and subpersons, mm -hmm. but persons and maybe some other more general category that would capture uh, better uh, people who were subordinated on the basis of social class membership. Mm -hmm. Derek. Yeah, thank, thank you for that. Um, great panel. So I, I want to I try to put Tony and Larry into conversation with one another with these two related questions. I, I like your, your slides, Tony. They, they help put a spotlight on you know, what's, what's, what's going on here. Um, but I was a little concerned that the spotlight image is not quite right because it's missing something I think is important for Mills. Um, you can be talking, you can be trying to put a spotlight on unfair distribution, or you can put a spotlight on oppression, as you were suggesting. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you think, you know, uh, ideal theory helps us do one thing, uh, and for Mills, non-ideal theory helps us do another. But, but I think that the real basic concern that Mills ultimately had was that ideal theory didn't give us the tools, I like, I like what you said about that, the tools to get from our currently unjust circumstances to a more just set of circumstances. So, so the tools weren't up for the job, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so for that reason, he proposed up non-ideal principles of corrective justice. And as you say, you know, he doesn't, unfortunately, most of the work he's done has been critical, not, not, not positive. So, you know, he hasn't really delivered the goods for us ultimately. We get, we get the concern about ending exploitation, ending racial disrespect, mm -hmm. and so forth, but that, that doesn't stand up to 
to the things that we have etched on our brains that Rawls has given us, and I think Mills would admit that. So I wondered if you could maybe just give us another take on what you, you've established that really puts that question more to the fore about Mills's concern with having principles that can get us from injustice to justice. Mm -hmm. Now the connection with Larry is this. I, I was happy, I'm always happy to hear people talk about uh, part three of a theory of justice, which is under-discussed. Um, the, the concerns about moral psychology are so central. And Larry, you drew a conclusion that I think I agree with, but I was, but I was surprised at how you got there and what you didn't say. Um, so for Rawls, the, the, the principles of justice were good, essentially because they could help secure a sense of justice among people who were not friends or family, right, but yet had to cooperate with one another. And I think a worry about, about Mills, at least a worry that I've had, um, is that his proposed principles of corrective justice ultimately wouldn't be able to secure a sense of justice, right? Uh, and if, if that's the case, they wouldn't yield a stable uh, the kind of stability that Rawls was concerned to argue that his principles would deliver. So, so maybe, maybe that could be a place for, for you two to sort of have some kind of conversation here about, about Mills around these, these questions of whether the proposed principles Mills give, gives to get us from injustice to justice could be the basis of stable kind of cooperation and secure a sense of justice among people who weren't friends or family, and in fact, people who had strong ideological commitments in, in so many ways. So anyway, it was a little windy, but you get the point. Yeah. No, so. You want to start? Go first? Okay, sure. Um, yeah, that's, that's all helpful. So um, I guess one thought I had was to go back to uh, this morning's discussion and this idea of mid-level principles. Right, as a kind of, uh, so I think Sabine was suggesting this as a way of thinking about, um, you know, the voting rights stuff and like, we need these principles to get from the ideal of equal citizenship to when we fight this particular battle or we, we, we you know, we ask the court to do this or that. And I wonder if like the way to think about his, uh, Mills's uh, corrective principles of justice are as something like, like, so, if you're gonna translate Mills's corrective principles into my Rawlsian structure, the place they play is as mid-level principles. That is, that are now like completely follow from the ideal of justice as modified in what I said, right? So now the principle that of, you know, uh, I forget what the, right? There's like a principle against racial exploitation. And that's, a, think of that as like a mid-level principle. So the thought is, we have this ideal, the ideal says you can't have racial exploitation, so that gives us a, a, a actionable principle, eliminate forms of racial exploitation. And now we're in a society and we're like looking around and we say, oh, this is a form of racial exploitation, we should figure out how to get rid of it. Obviously then there, you would want more said about that. I would love to hear more said about how to do that. Um, but that would, that would be one way of sort of getting from the 
unusable ideal to something that looks more usable in the moment when what we need is correction. Um, then I think, going to this question uh, about the sense of justice, right, part of what happens when you develop a sense of justice is you have a sense of yourself as a citizen, as a free and equal member of a fair system of cooperation. And what you would want to, you would need to show on, I think, this kind of amended view of mine, is that the institutions of, what, well, you would have to figure out what the institutions are of a, of a just democratic society that would produce a sense of justice that was non-racialized. Because my, right, I mean, I, I take it if we look at the, the kinds of institutions we have in this society, they produce a r racialized sense of justice amongst white people, right? Uh, which isn't a sufficient sense of justice and isn't what Rawls had in mind with a sense of justice. So, you know, then you could think about, like, that we have a, you know, I mean, you could then argue, I guess, that, like, the, the institutions of American democracy, one of the ways in which they are flawed, because they are flawed in many ways, is that they, uh, their pedagogical value is to create a kind of racialized conscience among white people and let them off the hook by making them think that that conscience is a sense of justice. And so now you would have, you know, now if we're t like talking together about this and we're invoking Rawls's principles, now we can't like turn a blind eye to that if you had this preamble or that something like the preamble would like prevent you from turning a blind eye or let someone who wanted you to alert you to that to say, hey, you know, this, this is the structure of this is how these things are working and we need you know, to take the current controversy of the moment, we need our public schools not to create uh, a white sense of justice. We need our public schools to create a, you know, anti-racist sense of justice. And that requires a different teaching and a different, you know, school integration and all kinds of other things like that. I don't know if that is enough of an answer. It's the beginning. I don't know if you wanted to respond to that before I go in or should I just go? Um, so on the taking your questions in reverse order, so on the second part, like you're right, you're totally right. I messed up <laughs> even what I intended to do in my discussion of uh, part three. I mean, that point about reciprocity was actually supposed to be in there and I kind of lost it. Now, good thing actually during his talk, Tony did a version of that. That's just what part of the meaning of what justice is to face each other openly and to be able to have that, that exchange. That's part of why the, 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 the Mills argument can be seen as a stability because basically it just, you know, we are supposed to believe that justice creates this sense of reciprocity and if it turns out that that people historically were not committed to it, it's like well what kind of reciprocity are you talking about here and so yeah that's so the stability breaks down and we, we can't psychologically make sense of 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 that um, so that's right um, now I do think and I'm not really going to respond to the spotlight stuff so much, but I do think you, you wanted us to have a, have a get into exchanges like I think Tony and my proposals are pretty different um, and so what I think is that like, well, what is the Rawlsian framework is supposed to do? It's supposed to identify when, when we, 
It's supposed to set up a, a, a forum for a political deliberation. One of the most important things that political deliberation does, because it aims at reciprocity, is that it identifies features of inequality and that asks, like, how can they be justified? Because, of course, remember, in life there are more many forms of inequality, and the question is what society does with them, right, and how we should understand them. And so, of course, there are going to be inequalities, and so we have to have a conversation about the inequalities that exist and, and, and come to terms that we can say, like, we can live with, we can live with this. Um, I think we should just do this. So this is a criticism of Mills, right? I think we should just do this piecemeal. That's when we come up with forms of inequality, basically we should have a conversation about that. And one of the most important things that we should have in our conversation is pointing out the history of racial injustice and how it shaped those inequalities. And that's part of that conversation. When we finish that conversation, there should be some sort of reciprocity. I'm worried about reparations not doing that because the, you know, the white people can say, well, we paid. So we're not going to have any more conversations with you because you just gave us a bill and 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 that's and that because that's not what the conversation is supposed to be about. That's not what we're looking we're looking for. Now, obviously, Mills is not going to like that because I'm what I'm getting rid of. I'm saying there's an important work of reparation going on in the in the in the uh, confrontation of uh, and, and justification of inequalities. Um, but I'm not I'm not giving him the lexically prior thing. Now, here's the thing. Tony's proposal gives an electrically prior thing, because there it was in the preamble. It's a preamble. But to me, um, in my categorization, the preamble is purely symbolic. It does not do any reparative work. It basically says, we really meant, or we should have meant to say, when we said persons, we really meant we should have said that sort of thing beforehand. Now, I want to say, also historically, it's like, they knew that in the beginning. When Jefferson said persons, he knew what he... What the f he was talking about, um, and like because free black person is a thing in colonial in jurisprudence, it's it's there. Is it is it generalized? No. Is it live up to? But like free black person, that's a thing, right? Um, it's just do we take that seriously and and and, and, and live, live up to it? So you're saying okay, well we, this is what we really should have said all along. We really mean it, but this time we really mean it. But there's no rep there doesn't that does no reparative work to, for for me. It's a, it's a merely symbolic. Um, um, and I am a big um, grumpy um, person about symbolic like acknowledgments of the history of racism and things like that. It's like when I see those sort of things, I just don't know. There's you know the piece that I know who was it Graham Wood in the Atlantic just wrote about land acknowledgments and how meaningless they are. It's like I'm all over that. I'm, t I'm totally all over that. Um, so like, please don't. Right? I want to invite Cecil to add to this conversation because obviously your paper is germane to everything that's just been said. And I know that since you're on video, you might not feel a part of our conversation. So I want to make sure you're included. You want to? Um, yeah, thanks. I just, can, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Um, no, I just make two, two points of connection between um, my argument and uh, Larry's and Tony's, perhaps. What I found really interesting in uh, Larry's exposition is that it's a slightly different sense of stability from that used by Rawls. And so Rawls thinks of stability as requiring a kind of congruence between people's comprehensive conceptions and the political conception of justice. And what um, you interestingly suggested is that we might think of different kind of congruence that would be required for stability. And that'd be a congruence between people's ad ad adherence to political conceptions on justice on the one hand and their racialized subjectivities on the other hand. And insofar as they live in racialized societies where racial oppression is pervasive, it's going to be difficult for them to reconcile their public commitment to justice with 
with our subjectivity. So I found that really a promising way of thinking through the kind of moral uh, psychology of political stability under under non-ideal conditions. But he raised but he raised an interesting question about um, when when exactly within the Rosian construct when exactly do we need the concern for stability? When does it kick in? Because the usual understanding of that is it only kicks in when there is a certain amount of compliance with principles of justice already. And so the question is, you know, should we be concerned about stability under conditions where racial oppression is still rife? Right? So I'm just wondering, what, what, does stability, is stability relevant under non-ideal conditions? So that, does, it, does it only kick in when you already have an ideal, a just society? And then Rawls was concerned about the long-term conditions for for the stability of that society. Mm -hmm. um, my, my comment to, to, to Tony, I, 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 it's, it's interesting how in, in, in my paper, I think of kind of pers persons as the category of moral thought that grounds the priority of freedom of conscience, for example. But it's interesting that in your presentation, you also show that historically the category of persons has functioned as a form of assignation, right, as, as a way of designing subperson as as well as 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 well as as well as persons and the war the war is this kind of creates for me is is connected to a very interesting book that um, uh, Anne Phillips has just published on on equality and she basically says that any attempt at categorizing who equality is for is bound to create exclusive categories. So as long as you have the term subpersons in your, even your preamble, it kind of raises alarm bells because even saying that no one should be a subperson raises the possibility that there might be such things. So she has a very radical view of equality with, with our foundation. That is, we don't even need to define the category to which equality should apply. So it would be a more radical view of what you were getting to, I think. All right, so we are at Catherine. Where did you go? There you are. Thanks, I really liked all of these papers, but my question's for Tony. So it's sort of similar to Christie's question. Uh, when I saw the preamble, my initial thought is that status hierarchies can be based on other things besides personhood or subpersonhood. And the way I was understanding that is sort of like a moral equality claim. So, um, this hierarchy, the social hierarchy, is based on a difference or a, an apparent alleged difference in um, fundamental moral value. I'm wondering if you mean something more uh, than, than a value claim uh, when you're distinguishing between those two categories. That's the first question. And then the second question is about um, what you said at the end, that securing status requires lowering ceilings. Uh, not just raising floors. And I wonder what, what the ceiling is and what the floor is. Uh, if you could just say a little bit more about that, that'd be helpful. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I think. Um, so let me start with the first. So, I mean, I guess this is also in reply to something Larry said. I think there's a, a sense in which I do think you do have to do justice theories of justice piecemeal. That is, the theory of justice you want depends on the injustice you're trying to understand and give a response to. And so, insofar as gender injustice and oppression is structured differently than racial, 
injustice and oppression. The tools for, think, for theorizing one may not work exactly well for the other. So I don't want it to be an all-purpose, like I, I didn't want the preamble to be a kind of all-purpose fix for you know, all kinds of injustice that you think uh, justice as fairness doesn't account for. Um, I think the ways to account for gender, dif gender oppression and injustice as fairness are slightly different. Um, so this was, you know, this was as the title of the paper is, and because of its the occasion in which I was writing it, I was really thinking about how to make it an anti-racist theory, and making it an anti-racist theory may not yet make it a fully feminist theory or a fully a, a theory for dealing with disability or what have you. So um, I think piecemeal justice in that sense is is important. There there are going to be clear connections and like thinking through why gender is a political system helps you understand what it would be like to think of race as a political system and stuff. So I'm not saying they're completely separate, but I do think we shouldn't just think there's one kind of thing called oppression and solving it in solving it is solving it everywhere. I see that, but just just talking about race. Yeah. Uh, it seems like we can acknowledge that uh, Members of all racial groups are equal in terms of fundamental moral worth. Right. Okay. Right. And I'm gonna, wondering, yeah. are you trying to capture more than that? Yeah. So right. Yeah. I was going to get there in a second, but I, let me just finish on the the piecemeal thing, and then I'll get to that. So the, where I disagree with Larry is, I think if you go, if you take the piecemeal thing too far, what you end up doing is having to say again and again, oh no, no, but that's also racist. But that's also racist. And so you put this burden on people to complain about the same thing again and again because you haven't fixed it. And then the problem is that people get sick of, of they think, well, didn't we fix that last week, right? We, we have to talk about race some more? It's like, yeah, because there's still racism. So if you have, you have, I think have to think about how to undo it root and branch, that's hard. Maybe it's impossible, but it's like, you have to at least see that the bits come from a system. Um, I don't think in terms of the underlying ground for equality, I don't, and I don't think Rawls thinks that way. I, I don't think Rawls has a theory, a fundamental theory of moral equality. I don't think he's interested in a fundamental theory of moral equality. I think he's thinking about what it means to treat fellow citizens as free and equal and going from there. And he's not, he's not, like, there's nowhere in uh, Theory of Justice where he tells us why we should do that. That's, I think, built into, the, that's why it's, a, it's the appropriate basis for a democratic society. That's just a given for him. Um, and so, in some sense, there's nothing more than moral equality, because there's, moral equality is, like, just not on the radar screen of the things that are governing Rawls's interests or concerns or responses and mine following him in that space. That is, I, so another way to put this is, I think if you want to understand what it is to hold the office of citizen, to use uh, David's language from earlier, if you think that holding the office of citizen is to occupy a position in a racial hierarchy, you are fundamentally mistaking what it is to hold the office of citizen in a democratic society. You're, you're historically accurate, right? <laughs> but you're, you fundamentally misunderstood what's attractive about the conception of a democratic society. And so, then the question is, how do you, can you think of it some other way? And what does that look like? And then we have to work that out. And we do it by starting bold and say no, no racial hierarchies, and then we get into the mid-level stuff, no racial exploitation, and then we get into the fine-grained stuff, you know, unencumbered ballot access, and we change up the nature of the carceral state, and we, you know, you think about all the way, the particular ways in which racial injustice 
infects our daily, uh, weekly, and monthly relations to one another, and uh, think about how a commitment to get rid of, getting rid of that requires us to change all that. On the ceilings and floors, the ceiling is just all the ways that uh, white people in a racist society benefit from racism, right? So benefit materially because of racial wealth gaps, benefit materially because of racist legacies of racist policies in college admissions that mean that you know, there are all these white people who get into Harvard because their parents went to Harvard, uh, not because they uh, would have gotten in on a fair competition. Um, white people get, you know, their neighborhoods get, uh, they get the feeling of security in their neighborhoods because the police state keeps black <coughs> people away from them. Uh, they get the feeling of influence in politics because the state keeps black people out of the, out of the voting booth. Um, you can't do that, right? In a, in a, in a non-racist society, you can't do that. So now I'm stuck with, I have to, you know, I have to win in a fair competition. I have to think about secu my security in a way that guarantees the security of all and doesn't involve surveillance and containment and so forth. I have to think about exercising my political liberties in a space where I don't have, uh, you know, privileged access to them. And that's, that lowers ceilings. So that's what I had in mind. Simon. Uh, thanks uh, to everyone, all three. Uh, so I guess my question is for uh, Tony as, as well, but I want to um, kind of take as a departure point um, Cecile's comment about Rawls's naive sociology uh, about the wars of religion uh, in the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, because I, 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 I think that's right. Um, I think it's right about as a criticism of, of Rawls and more importantly as a, 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 a point about having an accurate analysis of, of social relations and social functions and how societies evolve. Um, and my worry is that a similar mistake may be made by the idea of a racial system that um, we may have this loose and vague notion that there's a racial system in the same way that in the 16th century and the 17th century there was a religious system. And what does it consist in? Well, it consists in some people assigned to this category and some people assigned to that category and, and boom. Now, obviously, <laughs> you know, the stuff you put on the, uh, on the overhead is not <laughs> the articulation right. of a theory, you know, <laughs> the dinosaur theory. It's big, it's small. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the question it, it raises in my mind is, what is the ontology of the racial system? Um, I'm familiar with the ontology of, of an economic system. I'm familiar with the ontology of a political system. I'm, I'm familiar with the ontology of a legal system. I'm familiar with the ontology of just brute violence. Uh, and then the question is, what in addition, or what, what aspects of social reality in addition to those elements uh, do we need to identify and understand to understand the, the full complexity of, of the race caste system? Uh, and the same point about the gender caste system and, you know, with Susan's Oaken, Oaken's critique about the family, aha, all right, now we need to include the family as an element of our social ontology. Um, and I'm very happy to do that. Yeah, I'm very happy to say, 
systems of racism in our society do not merely reduce or do not merely consist in political, economic, legal, just pure violence type of relations. Um, I'm skeptical that they're not fundamentally those, um, but I'm happy that there may be other things in, in addition. And my, my worry is that to say, well, on top of all the economic and, uh, and political and legal stuff, there's this ethereal categorization of people of color as subpersons and white people as persons. I mean, I know historical circumstances where that's true. I know what uh, the, the, the transatlantic slave trade, that is subhuman mm. human. Uh, the British South Africa police had a, a standing order to shoot San Bushman on, on site as, as vermin. Mm. Tasmanian Aboriginals were wiped out as, as, as vermin. That's, that's very clearly true. But this is just one particular type of, of uh, form uh, that systems of, of racism or caste hierarchy or, or uh, gender hierarchy can, can take. Um, when when uh, you know the, 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 uh, a black executive on Wall Street doesn't get a taxi uh, stopped for him, that's not being treated as a subperson. Uh, it, it's discriminatory. It's 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 oh, disrespectful and all sorts of things. But it's not what is. I mean, it's not the Tasmanian Aboriginals being treated as, as vermin. It's something else. Mm -hmm. And I think if we if we, we explode the, the, the idea of person sub person to be our analysis of the extra um, elements we need in our social ontology. We're getting back into a naive sociology of, of the kind of, well, you know, the Catholics were sub, -person, sub persons or heretics or devil spawn or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's not so much a, a question as a as a, an expression no, of as a, no, frustration so, yeah, with reality. Right. I think, I mean, I'm not entirely, like, I don't, I'm not entirely sure about the ontology language, so it's, I, this is probably not the moment to do it, but I'd like to have a conversation with you about what you mean by that and what, what, what I'm missing. I just, I tend to not like metaphysical categories in my politics. Uh, I don't like them in my philosophy generally, but that's, you know. <laughs> I think I learned that from Rawls. Um, but leave that aside. I, I do think I get, get the point. And so, yeah, I mean, there are obviously different ways to treat people, hum, other human beings, as uh, fundamentally lesser and, uh, than uh, some dominant group. Treating them as vermin and shooting them on sight is one. Kneeling on their necks for nine minutes because of their counterfeiting is another. Um, you know, shooting them 20 times in the back as they're running away because you feel afraid as a police officer is another. Uh, the conditions in our jails are another, right? So, I mean, I think the, the black executive hailing a cab is the wrong place to look for racism in the US. Um, and it's a, it's a bad function of too many elites talking about racism that that's the kind of case we, we go to too often when thinking about racism. Uh, like, just as sexism is what happens to women, not men, not what happens to women in comparison to men, racism is what happens to people of color, not to white people, not what happens to them in comparison to white people. So that's, like, that's I think, where you have to start your sociology. Um, and there are many people, many much more qualified and knowledgeable than me to articulate how to do that. 
I do think that the, so part of the, the point of the, on, you know, of the racial category for Mills is that it allows him to show, so two things. One is it allows him to show how political theory gets to be ideological while being universal in a different way than the way a feminist said that about you know, relying on heads of households, relying on men as citizens, et cetera, et cetera. The second thing I think that's key is, that, is another sort of key idea of, of Mills is that uh, I think Larry talked about is, is the idea of white ignorance, right? So one of the ways in which racial systems work is by inculcating uh, an epistemic deficit in the dominant group so that we are unaware of, we are ignorant of the racial system, right? That's what allows it to, to function amongst well-meaning, you know, otherwise nice people. Um, and that's, like, white ignorance is, I think, a different kind of phenomenon than class domination and, I mean, like, in class dominant systems, there isn't this kind of ignorance that there is a class system, right? There's a reliance on it. I mean, you, you, if you're at the top of a class hierarchy, that's a sort of f fact you know about yourself, you know about what that means, you know what you get from it, and so forth. You may be ignorant about, like, what sustains it, and you may be ignorant about what, uh, whether you deserve to be where you are in it. Uh, but I think there's a, that's, so that's another place where there might be an important, uh, you know, in your language, ontological difference. But. I'm just, I'll stop there. I'm just going to pause for a moment uh, to acknowledge that it's 3.30. Um, I think if people want to stay and continue these lines of questionings, we're happy to do that. But also, if people have uh, classes comments. or other commitments that they need to get to, you shouldn't feel held captive. Um, so how does that sound, Micah? Are we? It's fine. We've got a show. Okay. So I, ju I just wanted to acknowledge that it's trained into me uh, that respect for persons entails acknowledging yeah, time, time constraints. constraints. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. well so done. we have Nate, Gina, and Sabine. And sorry, Simon, you're going to have to tackle Tony later and convince him. Um, and and if we could just keep questions to question length, um, all right, so uh, here's a question length question. Hi, I'm directly in front of you, actually. <laughs> oh, sorry. No problem. <laughs> Still have the mask on. Disembodied voices coming from who knows where. <laughs> um, sorry. This is actually to the panel because all three of your talks sort of crystallized a version of Mill's critique that I didn't hear you address, and maybe it's a sort of, maybe it's the one that I sort of think when I, that's uh, the one I think he has. So if we take the idea seriously that injustice creates identity categories and therefore that people who, um, people who are socialized and racialized and everything else into societies with a history of injustice are therefore, they take the first person perspective um, on their identity categories and they're valuable to them. But in this society, we have a different kind of person than a society that has not been marked by that injustice or by any injustice. So if you give me principles of justice for a society that has no history of injustice, they will be principles for a different kind of person than the kind of person that we are. And so that, that I think, is Mills's critique. It's the wrong kind of society, and therefore it's the wrong kind of person that you're theorizing about. And so like, in the future, you can't just treat people who, whose identity categories are what they are because of injustice by like, 
fixing the injustice. In fact, repair is some, almost the wrong conceptual paradigm. We're gonna repair race itself, if you take the sort of Mill's view of the, of the construction of race. So given that the history leads to identi identity categories and therefore two different persons, you need different principles. So, I mean, I mean this is probably going to seem too, too flat and, I mean, because I want to take up in the second part that what I think is the force of the, 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 the idea there, but like I want to say there, persons is a very thin, thin sort of abstract category is purposely made like the, the you know, person who has agency and, and has a conception of the good and can respond to the demands of others in form of sense of justice. That's what it, all what it means, right? We can talk about whether what, what, who has been assigned to be in that category of being able to do that and what the implications of not assigning some persons to, to do that are, but that's separate questions. Now, but I wanna say is that like, because the interesting stuff that happens is, is at the persons at the level of the specific on the ground, you know, like persons and their rich identities. I mean, I actually think this, this will say something to Simon's question is that like, you know, one problem I have with the, with the racial system thing is that like, again, I do think the reality of the persons and subpersons, well, that's a system in that way, but like, first of all, again, there's lots of effects of racial injustice in all sorts of ways, but like, if there's anything that's really systematic, and, I, and it's like, I want another word when people, when people talk about systematic or structural here, when it comes to race, I talk, because this is the point I think that I, I think you're, you're making is exactly right, although I don't think actually Mills is that good at emphasizing it. I mean, I think you actually said something that may be different from things that he, that, that, that he says, um, is that like, I mean, society is racialized in the sense that a black person, no matter what they do, they're a black person. It's filled with all sorts of identities. Now, not every identity, in fact, most identities that we associate are not sub-person, right? There's all sorts of other things that are associated with black identity. And of course, this is why it's a, it is a first-person category. And each, each person, I mean, I, I'm not gonna, I, I need to stop talking in the first person since this isn't my identity, but like, you know, I can, I can run it on Jewish person, right? There's just all sorts of received things. I have to decide for myself which things I'm gonna identify with and not identify with why and what that means and how that relates to the rest of the community. And if I adopt some weird idiosyncratic conception of what it means to be Jewish that's at odds with everybody else's, that's gonna be really weird. And there'll be cognitive dissonance of, of, of various sorts or something like that. So, but like, that's why I say, I wanna say we deal with that again, at the, at the later level, because then we're thinking about, well, well, are there different types of persons? Do people have different kinds of experiences? And because, again, this, the conception of justice is all supposed to take that into account. So I think we do have to take into account that there are lots of different kinds of persons in a racialized society, but we have to do that sort of on the, on the ground particular way later, not by criticizing the theory's notion of person, which is abstract and begins that way at, 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 in, in that way. I mean, can, you know, can yeah. I just yeah. take moderators, Larry, to yeah, interject? Sure, I, I, know you're I don't think that takes deeply, seriously enough Charles's critique. It's not that there's this concept of person and it's unequally applied. It's the very concept itself is racially constituted. It's like the feminist critique of man or the uh, black feminist critique of white feminism. Right. It's that the concept of a woman is constructed against that is correct. the inferiority. That, that's correct. Now, I think this is different from this criticism. I think that's absolutely correct that Mills says that. And I disagree with that. Okay, I disagree. I mean, and, and the argument from the political, and, and actually, I mean, I mean, the stuff that Tony said earlier about the moral quality not being in a political, and this is the value of democratic citizenship, it's like, 
I mean, that was wicked good. I mean, I agree with all of that. We have some disputes about sort of what happens later, but, um, but that's right. So, I mean, I am, I am committed to rejecting that, okay. that claim, but I know that's, that, that is absolutely the critique. Okay. So. Gina. Oh, did I, cut, did I just do something bad there? Sorry, I got all focused on defending oh, Charles. I don't know if you wanted to say anything about Charles. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know if you did. But. Hi. Uh, yeah, no, briefly, I think that's, I, I tried to, to bring up that point in the last section of the paper. It seems to me that males ask really interesting question about who, who, who is epistemically competent to theorize injustice. That is to, to, to offer a diagnostic of injustice. And he had a, Rawls had a lot to say about religious subjectivity, but very little about racial subjectivity. And when he talks about white ignorance, yeah, he precisely tries to show that some people don't have the epistemic position whereby they, 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 might, they might not be in the best position to fully describe what it is to be the victim of, of injustice. So I, I think that's quite a profound point actually about who, theorizes justice and uh, you know what, what is the constituency of the justice producers mm -hmm. and of the describers of injustice I mean, oh, thanks, I'm sorry. Um, so it seems like if, if we want to use reflective equilibrium to do the work of refining the ideals, then we can already be cognizant of the history and sociology of racism because we want to know, um, is this an appropriate ideal? Can it, can it do the right kind of condemnatory work um, when applied to a society with this kind of racial dynamics or something like that. And if it can't, then that's a problem for the ideals because we want them to be applicable to such a society. And um, I mean, even if, even if what you're trying to do is like discern the ideals, you know, Rawls still ask, ask, would this ideal adequately impugn religious intolerance? So asking the question about whether the ideal does the right condemnatory and prescriptive work in circumstances that have this kind of history and sociology of race uh, seems like it's fair game even at the point of theorizing the ideal. So I wondered if there's something wrong with the sequence or just uh, sort of a, a blind spot in the way it was applied that in this case we didn't really take on the history and sociology of racism at the step of theorizing the ideals. So it's tricky because I kind of argued like I wasn't arguing that there was something wrong with this, this sequence. I was arguing that this is a way to understand, this is the way we should understand Mill's objection to Rawls precisely because he agrees. I'm also trying to make sense of, of Mills's claim that he agrees with liberal moral ideals. Again, we kind of resist even moral ideals com completely uh, in, 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 in this. So in that sense, I was trying to reconstruct the, the, the a criticism of Rawls as proceeding in those, in those stages. Um, but I mean, I, I mean, I mean. So, so then again, I mean, th this is going to be repetitive. But like, you know, 
I mean, it is absolutely fair to challenge. I mean, I claim that, 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 that the, the ideals come from a very a, a conceptual analysis of the very idea of the political. And I claim, in response to Laurie, that that is independent of the history of. Now, it is absolutely, totally fair and right for you to challenge me and say, no, that's not right. It's like you're, there's something wrong with your argument, and it's vulnerable to this kind of historical criticism. And that's, I mean, that I'm I'm open to that, but I'm I mean I'm trying to reject it precisely because I'm trying to stay on the particular track that 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 I, that I think <coughs> Rawls was on. So I mean, we would just have to argue about whether the claim about sort of what the what the political is and what mutual justification and reciprocity are. We would have to say if those ideas are are, are completely. It, affected infected by the history and if they are then my argument's no good either right so that's so that i mean in that sense i totally agree with you but it's just like we have to go through the details and we could do that later i guess in light of the time i'm i'm going to close it down we do have have to honor the time of the shuttle guy who's probably not paid over time or whatever yeah so thank you everyone and thank you our speakers and sorry you aren't here thank cecile you. we owe you drinks <laughs>